Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science in each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back to Your Case is on Hold, episode 37. It's July 5th, 2023 issue of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. It's hot out and our takes are literally just as hot. In the peer review system, the people are represented by the reviewers who investigate the studies and the editorial board who adjudicate the cases. These are their stories. Welcome to Law & Order Joint Arthroplasty Unit. Dun, dun. That's my kind of jam. Yeah, there you go. I knew you'd like that. I I knew you'd like that. (laughs) I know. When I saw that you choose an arthroplasty one, I'm like, the world is changing. We're in trouble now. (laughs) Yeah, now you're in for it. Before we get into that, though, uh, for those who are not aware, Your Cases on Hold is brought to you by CME at JBJS and the JBJS Gear store. So you need CME, you need a tie, you need a dress shirt, you want some JBJS flair, get on the website, check it out. We've got the clinical classroom bundled with the self-assessment exams. You can literally get like two years worth of all the stuff that you need for maintenance of certification. It's good for everybody. You absolutely have to get in on it. As always, I said the takes are hot. They're going to be hot on this episode. They just reflect what I think about the research and what Antonia may say about, I don't speak for her. She doesn't speak for me. And we don't speak for the editorial board, the editor-in-chief, the other constituent journals, or the board of trustees. Make sure you smash the like button. Make sure that you give us a five-star rating. Make sure that you get the notification so you don't miss any episode of Your Cases on Hold, the official podcast of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery Issues. Check out what's backlogged if uh, you haven't already. And oh, by the way, I am Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methods. Porque en este mundo se tiene que pagar. Yo soy Antonia Chen, Deputy Editor Adult Reconstruction, which I can't say in Spanish. (laughs) I wish I could say all those wonderful things in Spanish. (laughs) And uh, welcome again to uh, Law & Order, Joint Arthroplasty Edition. So a lot of joint stuff uh, in this in this episode. Do, 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 do. There have been actually things from other individuals. I know. Sorry. <laughs> People was, have indicating that there hasn't been enough joint joint articles in JBDS. So this is yeah. to highlight the fact that joints are alive and kicking. Thank goodness. All those sports and spine surgeons reading JBDS are like, "What are the joints articles?" They actually are. <laughs> uh, let's get into it top of the pile what's new in orthopedic trauma not a joints article by flanagan and colleagues this is permanently free so check out the latest and greatest in the overview of orthopedic trauma research aoa critical issues symposium mind the gap addressing confidence imposter syndrome and perfectionism in surgical training really uh, informative insightful and important work from samora and colleagues What's important when the question is more important than the answer? By Shah, permanently free. And then new considerations in ACL surgery. When is anatomic reconstruction not enough? By Baker and colleagues. And now we'll go into the headlines. I have chosen an arthroplasty article. 
This is the Arthroplasty Surgeon Growth Indicator, a tool for monitoring supply and demand trends in the orthopedic surgeon workforce from 2020 to 2050 by Ruyan and colleagues. This is from the Cleveland Clinic. If you are a joint arthroplasty surgeon, you should check this out. It's very interesting. It's food for thought. It's stimulating. That said, if you want to buy everything that's being sold here, I've got a bridge for you in New York. I'm from New York. I own the property. Love to sell it to you. DM me. So um, the study... The print, I'm going to start, start sliding into your DMs, by the way. You got to be careful about that. Yeah. Uh, no, definitely. Definitely. The study is predicated on the fact that, as we've probably heard over the last 20 years, I think, the United States demographic is aging. There's going to be more demand for orthopedic surgery or joint replacement, however you want to look at it. And they maintain that the orthopedic surgeon workforce supply is shrinking. Okay, fine. We'll, we'll say for all intents and purposes, that's the premise. So the orthopedic workforce is shrinking and they wanted to model in a way that could really clearly delineate the issues that are going to arise with the numbers of cases of joint replacement that need to be done versus the individuals who are ready, willing, and able to do them. And they modeled this using the national inpatient sample data and then data from the Association of American Medical Colleges. They used data essentially from 2010 to 2020, and then they worked off of actual or projected annual total hip or total knee arthroplasties divided by the number of actual or projected orthopedic surgeons. And then they have this surgeon growth indicator, which is, you know, essentially kind of like a ratio, like how many procedures need to be done by how many surgeons. So the first thing, as you may have heard before, there's a sort of a maxim about modeling or projections, things like this, which is all models are wrong, but some are useful. So you can only really model in, in an effective, they're trying to model over the next 30 years, which means like what they're modeling for the next five years may be accurate. What's going to happen 30 years from now is very, very hard to accurately project. For example, robots could be doing the surgeries, in which case this entire argument about person power and and the need for you know training of joint surgeons or, or orthopedic surgeons just completely goes out the window. Nonetheless, their first thing is that they kind of using the data that they had available made a determination of the number of procedures per annual caseload per orthopedic surgeon, which is 24.1 total hips, 41.1 total knees, and 65.2 total joints. Now, obviously, that's the 24.1 plus the 41.1 added together. You get the 65.2. So the, the first thing is that this was modeled using linear regression and negative binomial regression. I don't want to get too far into the methodology weeds, but I think it's a nice point for the, the readers and our listeners to understand about linear regression. For linear regression modeling, there are a lot of parameters, a lot of boxes that have to be checked for it, for it to actually work. It's only a unique set of parameters really truly meet the um, recommendation for linear regression modeling. And it has to be truly continuous data. Age, essentially, if you're counting by days, is truly continuous. If you're counting by years, that's not. And the number of orthopedic surgeons is certainly not continuous. 
it's a count. There's one, one, two, three orthopedic surgeons. Ah, 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 right? Yeah, there you go. I know you love it. Um, I do. I love my counts. That's a count. There, you don't have 1.1 orthopedic surgeons or 1.3 orthopedic surgeons. What so if that, you lost weight or gained weight? Does that count? No, that doesn't count. Darn it. Well, just one. So, you know, when they're counting by orthopedic surgeon and then using this linear regression modeling, that's an issue right there. The next thing that popped out to me is like 24 total hips a year. Seems kind of low. Uh, I, like, you know, when I was in training, we had a, a joint specialist who on Fridays would do like seven total knees in two rooms with like a four, three kind of split. And he was very efficient. He could like turn them out in about 60 minutes or less kind of. And you have like the PA close in the other room while you go in and get started and then back and forth, back and forth. And in seven hours, he had seven total joints. I will tell you that this is a hint to the next article that we're going to cover that more than the majority of cases or total joints performed in the U.S. are performed by surgeons who perform 50 or less cases or 50 or less total joints per year. Yeah, no, I mean, that is absolutely that is absolutely true, uh, which also was another point that I would say those averages of those individuals are below the overall averages that they're estimating here. And let's also keep in mind that, um, kind of goes without saying, but not all orthopedic surgeons do joints. And here they are modeling what? per what? orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> you don't want every orthopedic surgeon doing joints. No, I know. Like, you true. don't want the peds people doing joints. You don't want the spine person doing joints. But here they're modeling it per orthopedic surgeon. You can't know who's joint trained and who isn't. Who's pra- right? So it's it's very, very like 30,000 foot rough, gross estimates. So is it useful other than substantiating a case, which I think has been made in a number of different ways, which is we need more orthopedic surgeons, but oh, by the way, we also need more doctors. We need more primary care doctors. It's a zero sum game. They are increasing the number of medical schools. I don't know that they're really increasing the number of orthopedic training slots. And not only that, but to train someone, you need the cases to train them on. So if you expand, from 12 orthopedic residents to 24 orthopedic residents, you need double the what they used to call materia medica. You need double the clinical substrate to train those individuals. So it's fun with numbers. You know, I think it's a little bit sensationalized. I would put this on hold. I would put this on hold. I, I don't think that this is accurately taking into account what the appetite for joint replacement, it just assumes just sort of like the last 10 years, that's just going to keep exponentially increasing going going forward. I don't think that that's an ac- an accurate assumption. Past performance is no indication of future behavior. And that is if people are so healthier, if, yeah. I mean, there's so yeah. many factors, there's so many nuanced determinations. And then just the the fact that it's it's a non-starter if you're just saying per orthopedic surgeon, because there are very many orthopedic surgeons who are not doing joint replacement. And then there are many orthopedic surgeons, as you just mentioned, who are doing joint replacement at a volume lower than what they're estimating. And then they would say, well, see, that just means that we even need even more orthopedic surgeons. But orthopedic surgeons may not want to go into joints. Then you get the other article that's like, if we don't increase reimbursement for joints, doctors are not going to want to do them. Completely agree. It's one of those things where it's a, it's a self-fulfilling it's prophecy, a right? When it comes to the right, circular yeah. prophecy. And to your point exactly for projections, at least, for... Um, you know, they have projections in the past, and I've gone back and looked at it, and it looks like there's a little bit more of a plateau than there is an asymptomatic, like a, like a logarithmic growth 
of number of joints, you know, which every projection has shown over time. But as you say, past performance, it seems to be more of a level out and like consistency as opposed to taking off exponentially. Yeah. I mean, if we go from that article a few months back that said that the dollar figures in terms of reimbursement are just decreasing to the point where surgeons are not going to want to do them. Well, if surgeons don't want to do them, then you don't need the surgeons to do them. <laughs> Perfect. So we won't have the surgeons to do them. We won't be reimbursing them, but we're going to add more to the workforce. I think that sounds like a recipe for disaster. <laughs> Talking about disasters, that transitions nicely to uh, the next group that we'll be looking at here. This is Medicaid patients undergo total joint arthroplasty at lower volume hospitals by lower volume surgeons and have poor outcomes by Dr. Cohen Rosenblum et al. And also a visual summary for this as well. And we just talked about volume, so it's one of the interesting thing areas we can cover here, is that studies have shown poor outcomes for patients undergoing total joint arthroplasty if the surgeon has lower volume. So to your point of having less cases, if the hospital has lower volume, for however that's defined, and previous studies have defined that as 200 cases or less of total joint arthroplasty cases, and if the patient has Medicaid. But the intersection of all these three variables have not been looked at together. So the wonderful authors conducted a database study using the Premier Healthcare Database from 2016 to 2019. And the benefit of using such a big cohort as, as studies, as you know from databases, there's pluses and minuses there. The, unfortunately, the minus side of things, though, we'll cover this a little bit, but the plus side of things, you get really large numbers, right? So the large patient cohort that resulted from this was 986,230 total joint patients. And of course, this only captures about 25% of patients because um, all hospital admissions. So the number is probably even greater than that. But this is a very high number, obviously, for a total joint study, something that you wouldn't be able to do in one single institution. And of course, here, this is looking at surgeon volume and hospital volume. So you couldn't just do it at one institution. So you have to go across a bigger database or something like Medicare, things like that. But in this case, we have to look at Medicaid patients. So we can't use the Medicare database. And the, and the, the authors here had a database that had 4.5% Medicaid. The Medicaid patients tended to be younger Black, female, from a rural hospital or from a teaching hospitals. And probably not surprisingly, unfortunately, is that the comorbidities were significantly different between the groups. And there was 27 out of the 33 comorbidities were different. The ones that were worse for those who were Medicaid patients were chronic pulmonary disease, obesity, and depression. Hypothyroidism was a disparity between them, but depression was greater in the uh, Medicaid patients. So there's definitely disparity in care when it comes to the patients who are Medicaid in this patient cohort versus those who are not Medicaid. So looking at just surgeon volume, so for surgeons, 46.4% of those with Medicaid were treated by surgeons performing less than 100 total joint cases annually, compared with 34.3% of those without Medicaid. What's interesting, as we had just talked about, the majority of cases are actually performed by people who do less than 50 cases a year. And the study reported a mean volume of 110 for those treating Medicaid patients. So that's actually pretty high when it compares to all the people who are doing joints um, throughout the country. So, you know, it is saying that patients, people who are in rural areas or in um, academic center or teaching hospitals, and these hospitals might actually treat a higher number of total joint arthroplasty patients than the community surgeon who treats less total joint arthroplasty patients. Looking specifically at hospital, a higher percentage of patients with Medicaid who underwent total joint arthroplasty, as defined as low-volume hospitals, less than 500 cases annually, there were 50.8% versus 35.5% of patients um, in these and then the hospitals with uh, Medicaid. And we all know that surgeon volume is often tied to hospital volume, right? So if surgeon volume is low, normally the hospital volume tends to be lower. 
surgeon volumes higher, then that's going to contribute likely to a higher volume hospital. And we know that there's benefits in, uh, to having a high volume center. They can have consistency of care. Things are more protocolized. Um, it becomes more of a regular routine process as opposed to a newer process each time. The question that and I have for you as a methods person, but also just in general, is what does this actually mean? You know, if patients who are undergoing Medicaid, who sorry, patients who have Medicaid are undergoing these procedures, are then found to have poor outcomes, which is the second part of this study. And even when they control for patient demographic characteristics, hospital factors, annual hospital and surgeon volumes, and medical comorbidities, they found that Medicaid patients had increased risk of deep vein thromboses, pulmonary embolism, periprosthetic joint infection, and 90-day readmission. And they even performed two logistic regression models with different interaction terms, one for surgeon volume and one for hospital volume, and it still found that periprosthetic joint infection was higher in Medicaid patients. So even with the intersection of those three, the infection rate was still highest. And that probably contributes to things like comorbidities, as there's been other studies, because this is an intersection of different confounders, potentially, right? Patients who have diabetes have increased risk of infection. Patients who are obese have increased risk of infection. So these patients are also found to have Medicare, Medicaid sorry, in this uh, study. You can see that in all the comorbidities listed. That becomes problematic as well. So again, what does this mean? Does that mean that cases should be done at higher volume places or only with higher volume surgeons or higher volume surgeons turning away Medicaid patients or higher volume hospitals turning away Medicaid patients? One of the biggest things that you can see here, as I said, is most patients either went to a rural hospital or a teaching hospital. Is some of it geographic, right? Is the patient actually transferable? Can you take the same Medicaid patient and put it in a different hospital, such as a higher volume hospital or a surgeon with higher volume? Or are patients limited by other factors such as geography and cost, especially if they're given that the tie between low income and Medicaid, that can be problematic. So um, they looked at a little few more things and, you know, they saw that increasing surgeon volume significantly minimized the absolute difference in PJI. Increasing hospital volume also significantly minimized the absolute difference in PJI. Um, and they saw the thresholds for surgery should be 484 total joints per year and 100, 1,933 total joint cases per year for a hospital setting. That was the threshold for more PGI versus less PJI. And those are pretty high numbers, I have to admit. The, you know, there are definitely a few centers who have that, but those are pretty high numbers. So are the worst outcomes really because of low-volume surgeons or low-volume hospitals or the patient? And I don't like to keep blaming the patient or the low-volume surgeon or the low-volume hospital. You know, what about these patients that go to these hospital surgeons that can lead to poor outcomes? And what are the variables that are played that are outside of insurance alone? And again, we don't want to limit access for patients, right? Um, our low-volume surgeons, our teaching hospital surgeons, our rural hospital surgeons are doing a service for patients who have Medicaid. And that's an important thing that we don't want to lose access to that. Um, but there are things that potentially we can optimize patients prior to surgery to hopefully reduce the risk of uh, infection and other, comorb or other morbidities um, that are associated with that the authors found in this study. Yeah, I, this is um, well done um, methods-wise, really. And and it's a, it's an absolute example of healthcare segregation, um, which we talk about uh, philosophically, and 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 it, it's it's hard to to um, demonstrate in smaller studies. You need something like this, but th they don't call it healthcare segregation. But that's what th this is, uh, you know, a socioeconomic uh, because they're evaluating Medicaid. It would be healthcare segregation on a socioeconomic basis, but the disproportionate. Uh, management of these patients, as you said, in lower volume facilities uh, amongst lower volume surgeons and then um, 
because we already know the volume outcome relationship that does lead to uh, inferior outcomes in a number of respects. Uh, as you said, you know what what does this mean? I'm, I I think the the real question is, you know, how do we do better? How do we change it? What are the policy strategies to uh, effectively address this? And they gave us their numbers for um, the volume-based outcome metrics that, as you said, there are really very few facilities that that can meet um, those numbers. And that that's food for thought because the knee-jerk reaction is, all right, well, we're, we're going to have centers of excellence. We're only going to, you know, let you can't have your total joint done unless you're having it done at this, you know, particular place. And that's... Um, that's just not, uh, you know, restricting access to certain centers that then cannot handle the volume is not is not an answer. Um, and and we know in other respects where they've specifically looked at the effects of centers of excellence programs and things like that, and bariatric, et cetera, published in JAMA, done by Dimmick and colleagues and Michigan, that they actually have worsening effects on the at-risk population, the marginalized population, because you're saying you can only do it at this place. And then there are barriers to them getting into those places. There's long waiting lists. They're prioritizing other individuals, not saying that any of this is, is obviously the way things should be done, but it is in many respects, the way things are done. And that's why we see these issues with healthcare segregation. And I think it's going to take a, an overarching systemic type response to, to address these kinds of parameters at the end of the day. I agree. This is something we keep working on, but at least highlighting these problems are a no, beneficial start. Definitely. Yeah, well done. Well done work. Um, please, please do uh, check it out. That paper also did have a visual summary. So now moving into the uh, Your Case is on Hold featurette, gene expression in glenoid articular cartilage varies across acute instability, chronic instability, and osteoarthritis. By Aleem and colleagues, this article comes with a commentary, so you don't have to just take it from me, and uh, it's also free for 30 days, so uh, do check that out if you get the opportunity. So th this study, incredibly interesting, using cutting-edge research, we're talking about gene expression, which is really at the leading edge and, and um, high visibility, high interest in terms of this type of work. They want to look at gene expression in the cartilage of the glenohumeral joint after dislocation events particularly uh, relating to the risk of post-traumatic osteoarthritis. So they uh, collected articular cartilage from the anterior inferior glenoid of patients, shoulder stabilization surgery with 17 patients, total joint with 16 patients. And they performed polymerase chain reaction to assess relative expression of 57 genes, looking at osteoarthritis versus instability, acute and chronic, acute versus chronic instability, osteoarthritis versus acute instability, and osteoarthritis versus chronic instability. So a lot of comparisons there, pretty limited number of, of patients. These studies are hard to do with, with larger number of patients, but they found the expression of 11 genes from OA risk allele studies and nine genes from differential expression studies were significantly different between cartilage from patients with instability and those with uh, osteoarthritis. And the cartilage in the osteoarthritis group displayed higher expression of CCL3, CHST11, GPR22, PPKAR2B, and PTGS2 than cartilage in the group with acute or chronic instability. And 
this is, you know, potentially informative. Their conclusion is that the glenoid cartilage in inflammatory and catabolic phenotype in shoulders, but anabolic phenotype in shoulders with instability. And cartilage from shoulders with acute instability have greater cellular metabolic activity compared to those with chronic. The clinical relevance, as they say, is it's it's an exploratory work, but it's potentially new biological insight into the relationship between instability and eventual OA, which could lead to strategies to predict and potentially modify patients' risk. Fine. All good. All worth checking out. Things that I would point out. Number one, you don't know that the patients who had the end-stage arthritis, the 16 of those that underwent the total shoulder, had instability beforehand. Right. So so the if you follow these people along and are sampling their cartilage along the way, which, of course, is impossible to do, you don't know that these 17 individuals with the instability are going to end up like the 16. There could be other etiologies for the, the osteoarthritis that needed the total shoulder. There could be other genetic predispositions for the osteoarthritis that needed the total shoulder. And that's probably the, the main myopic point from my perspective in terms of what, you know, they touted as the clinical relevance. Again, when you're only talking about 17 and 16 cases, invariably, that's not enough to build the case that you have a robust coverage of the spectrum and sufficient numbers to look at all the various driving factors, mitigating factors, and sociodemographic clinical factors to actively model this is the entire universe across the spectrum of acute instability to chronic instability to advanced end-stage arthritis. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of a soft critique, but it's definitely a valid critique. It doesn't, you know, impair the work that was done. I think this is potentially interesting information. These studies, it's always easy to say, oh, these are potential gene targets for modifying or understanding the new biological insights into the relationships, et cetera. It doesn't mean that they hold up, you know, at the end of the day or that there's anything you can do about it, right? Some of that damage is baked in. Right. And that's the thing with acute versus chronic, right? It, it seems like gene expression changed with time, right? So it's not like you could predict it. Exactly. And that's right. And that's another thing too. So, you know, it's like, okay, this is interesting information. You're taking it at the time of surgery as opposed to using it as a, a factor ahead of time. That's why it'd be nice to actually see genetic expression in serum because then you can check those at different time frames and potentially see if you look at someone early, if you can predict if they're going to have instability chronically, right? Or if you're going to have only acute versions of it, or you're going to, you you already exhibit chronic signs of it, but you actually, sorry, you already exhibit chronic genetic factors of it, but you haven't exhibited it yet clinically. So those type of factors, you know, unless you're not going to go in and get samples and biopsy them, unless you perform. That's not practical, but from certainly from serum, that's much more actionable. Mm -hmm. I could even say like, you know, uh, based off of joint washings or something Mm -hmm. like that, that's much more invasive. Yeah. Yeah. but serum, I think, is probably the most actionable if you're looking at something that you're going to say is scalable to to a, a population based intervention. Or yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Um, anything else on that one? Nope. Serum was my take home one. That's what I'd love to be able to see that as the next study step. You could say if you liked it, Skip. Just you could say if you like it. <laughs> you know, we got talk to about. Yeah, you're talking to the both. I, I you know, last last time we talked about genetics, and I think we're we're going to see more and more genetic studies oh, coming definitely. out. And we like the idea of it, but we just want to see if they're actionable. And I'd like to encourage Yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating stuff. It's like the intersection of history and medicine, which is like my two real loves um, from Go. But yeah, sometimes like with historical papers, you're like, okay, great, thanks. But what do we do with it now? And they're like, no, it's just interesting. It's just interesting to know. Uh, you know let's talk coffee, about the honorable coffee knowledge. Other things that are interesting to know. 
Complications associated with preventive management to reduce the risk of COVID-19 spread after surgery for spinal cord injury by Ushiro Zako and colleagues. There is a infographic for our visual learners on this. This was a study that was done out of Japan. It's a single center retrospective work looking at 175 cases who had spinal cord injury. They could not continue early rehabilitation interventions starting with the breakout of the pandemic. And so they're using a propensity score model in, you know, what is kind of a, a hopefully once in a lifetime kind of natural experiment that there's this unique disruption in care to adjust for age, sex, spinal injury association, impairment scale, and risk factors for perioperative complications and looking at perioperative uh, complication rates. And, and even with early surgical intervention um, in this comparison, late mobilization and delays in active rehabilitation during the COVID-19 pandemic resulted in uh, increased perioperative complications after spinal cord injury surgery. So, so not, not, a, not a surprise about what you would expect, you know, given what we know about that, that difficult clinical condition. Uh, next, we have extensor mechanism disruption impacts treatment of dislocated and multi-ligament injured knees. Treatment and skank classification recommendations based on the global Delphi method by Medvecki and colleagues. Really interesting work. It's a Delphi study with a lot of experts that they sampled, 46 surgeons from six continents with expertise in multiligamentous knee injuries, trying to address the dearth of clinical evidence to guide the surgeon on the management of these challenging conditions. So, you know, very interesting with their findings. You are just going to have to check it out. I'm not going to give it all away here. But, um, you know, some some really good food for thought there, highlighting the impact that the these types of injuries have and how it informs the treatment algorithm for providers. Expert opinion, but but a really uh, comprehensive and thorough way of getting at that, developing that, which I think is good. And then last, we have uh, Lee and colleagues, a torn discoid lateral meniscus impacts lower limb alignment regardless of age. The byline surgical treatment may not be appropriate for an asymptomatic discoid lateral meniscus. There's an infographic for this, but I think the byline says it says it all. Uh, they also engaged in propensity score matching, 436 and 423 patients in their two groups. So a pretty powerful propensity score study. And they you know, ultimately conclude surgical treatment may not be appropriate for asymptomatic discoid lateral meniscus. That's all we have for this episode. I uh, hope you enjoyed. If uh, you like what we're saying here, make sure you uh, like and subscribe. Give us that five-star rating. If you don't, thanks for sticking with us this long. We'll try to do better next time. And um, hopefully uh, you're ready to go for your summer surgeries. But uh, right here, your case is still on hold. Till next time. <laughs>